tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Ngā mihi nui kia koutou. E ngā mana whenua, tēnā koutou. E ngā rangatira, kai rangahau, kai ako e hoamā, tēnā koutou. Nō rangi ora ahau, ko Maukatiri te maunga, ko Waimakariri te awa, ko Randolph te waka, ko Katie Fitzpatrick takuengua, tēnā koutou katoa. Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for coming. I must say I've done a lot of talking in bars, but I've never given a talk in a bar. Um, in the next half an hour or so, I'm going to talk about some of my work centering on an issue that has perplexed me for the last 25 years. Why schools are not prioritising sex education, or what I like to refer to as sexuality education, um, and mental health education. So raise your hand if you think that health and well-being is an important thing to you in your life. Put up your hand. Pretty much everyone. I'm kind of searching for that one person who's going, no, it's not my thing, I don't care. Um, put up your hand again if you think that you wish you had have learnt a little bit more about health and well-being, sexuality, mental health when you were at school. Yeah, again, pretty much everyone. So tonight I'm going to consider the reasons that schools might make a shift to prioritise learning about health and well-being. And I'm going to reflect on the reason why despite us all valuing health and well-being really highly, this hasn't happened. This talks in three different parts. Um, in the first part, I'm going to talk about the issue, what it is, what the problem is. I'm going to share some stories, and I'm going to introduce myself a little bit more. In the second part, I'm going to reflect on the specific issues and aspects of the history of schooling, especially in New Zealand, but it does apply to other places, that help us understand where we got to now. Third, I argue that part of the problem is that we focus on individual behaviour change in health, um, and that that's not the work of schools, and it's not very effective. And then I'm going to end by arguing that while we shouldn't suggest that schools can solve health problems, we can insist that schools might focus on learning. And I make some recommendations for how we might make that a reality. So, part one. What's the issue? On a recent plane trip to Wellington, I was talking to a father of three who told me about the mental health struggles of his 16-year-old daughter. Her anxiety and depression got so bad at the beginning of the year that she wasn't able to attend school. He blamed himself, went around and around in his head trying to figure out what he'd done wrong. The latest stats from a nationwide study of youth health undertaken by the Adolescent Health Group at the University of Auckland suggests that around 23% of young people are showing significant signs of depression, and these are young people in high schools. For young people who identify as gender and sexually diverse, the stats are much worse. And many people, myself included, are wondering what's going on and what can schools do about it. The conversation with that parent made me think a little bit about my own schooling and my own background. I grew up in North Canterbury, near a town called Rangiora, and I went to a Catholic boarding school in Christchurch. During my schooling, I had many teachers who cared about me. I had, and I still have, a loving family and lots of support. I grew up thinking that I could achieve. I had a lot of advantages, and I engaged in rich learning throughout my schooling. But never once did anyone teach me explicitly about my health and well-being. I didn't learn much about my own body, about sex or sexuality, I never, was never taught how to make friends, how to deal with difficult emotions, how to heal a broken heart, or the processes of grieving. I never learned about why I was advantaged 
in the health lottery as Pākehā, or how health outcomes are stratified just as our society is stratified. I was lucky that I learned from my parents to be positive and hopeful and to have goals, but that learning was implicit, and I never had a sense of or could name the cognitive, social and emotional skills involved. It was rather assumed when I was growing up that this kind of stuff, the stuff of relationships, body, health and living, was just something you had to work out along the way, all by yourself. When I went through difficult times in my life, I didn't have a clear conception about how to navigate my way through it. It was kind of like I felt a little bit blind, trying to figure out things without the information I needed. I was lucky that I had a strong sense of myself, my identity, my ancestry and my cultural connections. But I didn't have a kite of knowledge and skills to draw upon, or not ones that I could name and put into action. This all changed when I studied to be a teacher at the University of Canterbury in the 1990s, and I learned about a subject called health education. I learned that we could, and that young people should, be given opportunities at school to study mental health, to study sexuality education, to learn relationship skills, to learn how to take action against discrimination, and to learn about how food and food cultures affect us. In my career since then, I've spent my time teaching health education and physical education in high schools and in teacher education programs at the University of Waikato and since 2010 at the University of Auckland. I've also worked on policy for the Ministry of Education and I've written some resources for teachers in schools. I've published quite a few academic books that not very many people read, but the book that I'm the most proud of is this book here. This is a resource book for teachers. It has 300 pages of lesson ideas and pedagogical advice about how to teach about mental health. The name of the book is Mental Health Education and Hauora, Teaching Interpersonal Skills, Resilience and Wellbeing. I co-wrote and led the writing of this with Kat Wells, who's a wonderful teacher and leader at Linfield College in Auckland, and my colleagues Melinda Weber, Rachel Riddell and Gillian Tasker all contributed. The book sold over 4,000 copies, which is kind of stunning for any book that an academic might have written, and it was sent to every school in the country by the Ministry of Education. And why has this book been so popular with teachers? It's because they're crying out for resources, for support and ideas about how to teach about mental health, well-being, resilience, social and emotional skills, identity, belonging, mana, and the many other topics that we address in the text. So why study health education at school? I'm going to look at two lots of evidence, one about mental health and one about sexuality and gender. So let's look at mental health. In current times, some young people seem to be experiencing increased mental health issues. And this is not a secret, we, we can see this. As they grapple with even more complex social, cultural and emotional and environmental conditions. Results of the Youth19 study from the Adolescent Health Research Group that I mentioned before show that while most students are happy or satisfied with their lives, about 23% report significant symptoms of depression. This is an increase, staggeringly, from 13% in 2012 to 23% in 2019. There is a persistent and growing mental health inequities between Māori and other ethnic groups, and we know that socioeconomic deprivation is important. Symptoms of depression and rates of suicide attempts are generally higher among those living in lower-income communities. It's clear that learning can make a difference. 
The research of Margaret Barry suggests that mental health can be impacted by programs that focus on, and I quote, cognitive and emotional resources such as self-esteem, identity, self-efficacy and resilience, as well as problem-solving, relationship and coping skills, end quote. We also know that mental health is impacted by social exclusion. So addressing issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, fatism, ableism, and other exclusions is important. Programs that build students' skills and self-efficacy to impact not only their own well-being, but to make a difference in their schools and communities are ideal. Recent research in New Zealand all show that the difference that supportive school environments and meaningful learning can make for diverse students. So let's look at some of the evidence now around relationships, gender and sexuality. A recent PISA report on well-being revealed that New Zealand has the second highest rate report of reported school bullying in the OECD. A disproportionately high proportion of those students who report bullying identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer or intersex. And the Youth 19 survey showed that one in ten participants in high schools currently report attraction to the same or both sexes, 5.6 reported that they weren't sure of their sexual attractions, and about 1% of the current high school population identify as trans, non-binary, or with a cultural identity that is more gender expansive. And that's research from the Adolescent Health Research Group. The proportions of New Zealand young people who reported belonging at school in the same study differed depending on their gender and sexual identities. Gender and sexually diverse students reported lower levels of belonging and lower levels of feeling safe at school. Dr. John Fennerty, um, a member of our faculty and a member of that research team, commented that, and I quote, the increased amounts of mistreatment and stress, particularly for some transgender and diverse gender young people, are known drivers that underpin the increased rates of mental health challenges we are seeing. We know that all young people and children are navigating increasingly complex social, cultural and political contexts. Pubertal change is beginning earlier for some children, and digital environments, as we know, are ubiquitous. Learning how to develop healthy relationships in both online and offline contexts is important, as are strategies for dealing with sexualized content and online bullying. Families, in a positive sense, are more diverse than ever, and we can see that children and young people are correspondingly questioning many gender norms and binaries in school. Friendships and peer group relationships remain incredibly important for most young people. And in recent work that Melinda Weber and I did with some focus groups of young people, they were saying that one of the things they wished they learned more about was how to support and have strategies to support their friends um, when they're in distress. They want to learn more about that. As young people grow, identity issues become central and they engage more directly with feelings, desires, notions of intimacy and sexuality. For many young people, social political issues are also really important. Social media and digital communication are the norm and are fast changing. Dating apps, social media sharing and sharing platforms are changing how young people form and sustain relationships, including intimate relationships. The internet, popular culture and social media are also flooded with a wide range of messages about sex, sexuality, gender and bodies. Not all of these are particularly positive or helpful but teenagers are increasingly looking for online answers to questions that they're curious about. 
A recent survey of New Zealand youth showed that one in four had viewed pornography by the age of 12 and two-thirds of teens under 17. The same study showed that New Zealand youth are, are aware of the problems with the open availability of online pornography and they want to see some changes and they want to talk about it in school. So, I'm arguing here that young people in New Zealand should be given the opportunity to study a subject called health education not in order to try to solve the mental health stats I began with, but so that young people have opportunities to learn skills, question these social changes, and learn about the basis of them, the complexities of them, and the debates about how we might address them. They need opportunities to engage meaningfully with their peers and teachers in interrogating these issues and learning all kinds of different skills to respond. Health issues have more complex causes that are in the power of schools to address but schools can and should do what they do best, respond by engaging in educative inquiry. So, the good news is, health education is a recognised subject in our curriculum, and it has actually had academic status for at least 30 years, you might be shocked to know. It includes learning in sexuality, relationships, mental health, drug and alcohol education, and food and nutrition and safety. And these are all things that young people might learn about. Not many people know how we're placed in New Zealand in relation to education and health policy, but I'm going to tell you. We're one of the only countries in the world that has dedicated separate subject called health education. And we are the only country in the world that offers health education as a distinct qualifications-based subject in senior high school in the NCA. My own research suggests that New Zealand has the most, some of the most progressive and holistic policy in the world in this area. We have one of the only curriculum policies that recognises explicitly diversity of gender and sexuality among young people and suggests that schools should respond. I think we have the only policy in this area that attempts any kind of bicultural framework to value Indigenous knowledges. Unfortunately, we do not have the most consistent progressive practice in schools, as some of your own experiences in schools might attest. The translation of policy to practice has not been realised. In fact, most schools in New Zealand, not all, some do value health education, but most give health education very little or no time. And fewer than 5% of senior high school students take health education in the NCA. In the last five years, I've had the opportunity to work on curriculum and policy documents for the Ministry of Education. In 2015, I worked with a team of people to write the sexuality guidelines for all schools, and we updated this last year. I do this work because I know that policy sets a direction, and however difficult it ultimately is to realise in practice, policy is a placeholder, a kind of stake in the ground, a historical record of what we stand for and what we believe might just be possible in education. Curriculum policy documents provide directions for school, not only to plan programmes of learning, but about how they give them advice about how to undertake a whole school approach. The Relationships and Sexuality Guidelines published last year has been called by Professor Peter Agleton, who's a public health expert, a beacon to the region and the wider world. It's also been recognised internationally. Riggs and Bartolomas, in a, in a publication, stated that the policy recognises gender issues beyond the limitations of binaries. And Graham Trehan and Nairn stated that the New Zealand sexuality education curriculum draws on holistic meanings of sexual health with objectives that aim to teach young people to critically examine gender and sexuality within society. 
And I think those statements are, are significant because if you ever read any international debates about sexuality education, it seems to be quite controversial in a number of countries. In Canada, there's all kinds of protests when they put out a new curriculum. It's not very controversial here. Our policies tend to pass and most people agree, but the translation into practice here is what the issue is. Right now, as we know, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic and debate is still raging internationally about the social and mental health effects of lockdowns, about the costs of focusing even necessarily on a singular disease at the expense of other health concerns. And there's a lot of misinformation about the virus and about vaccinations. Young people are also suffering a kind of existential crisis at the intersection of climate change and COVID-19. And there's no doubt, as the stats that I've shared with you suggest, that mental health needs are increasing. We know that gender, sexuality and identity are really important issues for young people. Parliament has received several petitions from youth in the last two years demanding sex education and mental health education are given more focus in schools. So there's clearly a need. I've argued so far that we've, we have a range of health issues that are important and important social issues that are facing young people and that schools can respond to this by prioritising learning. In fact, health education is possibly more important now than it ever has been. So why does it continue to hold such a marginalised place in schools? So in part two, I'm going to reflect on some of the reasons that health education is not given priority and relatedly, the mix-up, because I think this is part of the problem, that people get confused between health education and health promotion and why this difference is important. So why is health education not prioritised? Well-being has actually never been central to the work of schools. Mass education has never, perhaps until this moment, been all that interested in, social, in student well-being. Well-being or health has historically been located within families and in the health system. Young people and children have certainly experienced health interventions in schools, largely because they're a captive audience. And schools have always known that a certain amount of pastoral care is needed for the system to work. But the purpose of schooling has always been primarily concerned with social and cultural reproduction and training young people to take their place in the economy. Added to this is the issue of subject and knowledge hierarchies. Numeracy and literacy have been promoted in this country and in some other places in the last 15 years, almost to the exclusion of everything else. Even very established subject disciplines like the visual arts, drama, history, social sciences, and even science have been marginalised in schools. So a relatively new subject like health education never really stood much of a chance. There's a further misconception that health education and physical education and other subjects like dance, that they're body subjects, concerned with instrumentalist ends, and they're not really serious head subjects. This assumption goes all the way back to the Enlightenment and the separation of the mind and the body. We have learnt, although some have always known, that pretending the mind and the body are separate is deeply problematic, not least for well-being and for mental health. Practices like mindfulness are an attempt to remind us that our minds and bodies are one, connected not only to each other inextricably, but to the world around us, to others, to the environment, to history, to ancestors. Māori have, of course, always known this. But the other reason that health education does not get prioritised in school is because it gets confused with health promotion. So even if schools do want to do work to address well-being, 
and support students, and many do, they tend to approach health issues as a problem to be solved, rather than a learning concern, a subject of study. So if we accept that young people need knowledge and skills about health and well-being, just like they need English and maths and te reo Māori, then how do we go about this? My key argument and a crucial shift in understanding that's needed is that health education is not health promotion. In my work, I argue that there are two possible approaches to health in schools. One is education for health, the other is education about health. Dina Lay, my colleague at Monash University, argues that the health field is still dominated by psychological models that focus on individual behaviour change while paying lip service to the social determinants of ill health. This is influenced by the history of health and education. As I said, it wasn't always a subject in schools. Rather, schools were targeted as the focus of health interventions to get children to brush their teeth, drink milk, perform calisthenics, and so forth. When health education did become a subject in its own right in the 1980s, but properly in the 1990s, everyone still thought it was a response to health problems. So edu health education gets confused in this tangle between education for health versus education about health. If health education is prioritised as education for health, then there's an assumption that its purpose is to address health outcomes solve health problems and prevent unhealthy behaviours. This is not education, this is an intervention. I argue in my work instead that we need education about health. This conceptualises it as a subject, a place to study health and well-being in all of its complexity. Education about health engages knowledge, skills and understandings of health issues and how they intersect at the level of the personal, social, cultural and historical not only the individual. Education for health, which is really health promotion, tends to focus mainly on the individual and trying to change their behaviour. The problem is campaigns to change behaviour don't tend to work. Campaigns that aim to change behaviours such as smoking or drinking often do a really good job of raising awareness. But behaviour is much more complex because it's a function of environments, social relationships, contexts, political possibilities and so forth. Education for health tends to view health as controllable at the individual level. It's then tempting to seek interventions into health at the individual level. Some schools use programs like mindfulness, positive psychology and growth mindset. These are having a moment in schools right now, all of which aim in different ways and with different knowledge bases to impact individual thinking and behaviour, and they also teach some skills. These can be very useful, and they're certainly worth learning but they're problematic if they ignore the context, context and relationalities of health and well-being. So there's an example that I often use with teachers, that if a student in their class is experiencing racism in the school environment, then thinking positively about it and using the tools of positive psychology are probably not going to help them very much. They may be useful to that student in some ways, but understanding institutional racism, the history of colonisation, and the effects of these on health will have more impact. If the school is working to honour te tiriti o waitangi and students are engaged in learning how to shift school cultures, then the impact on students' well-being and the whole school will be much greater. The good news is we're up to part three. Focusing on individual behaviour change doesn't work because of the determinants of health. 
So the determinants of health tells us what contributes to our own health status. These are a combination of social determinants, environmental, cultural, political, economic factors, many of which are not in your direct control. They combine with your individual genetics, also not in your control, and your individual behaviour choices to determine your health outcomes. These are necessarily complex and unpredictable. But there's more. According to World Authority on Public Health, Professor Michael Marmot, the determinants of health also work to create a hierarchy, a social gradient. So Marmot notes, in countries at all levels of income, health and illness follow a social gradient. The lower the socioeconomic position, the worse the health outcomes. We kind of have a sense of this, right? So we know that epidemiological patterns exist along the following lines. White middle-class communities generally have better health outcomes than non-white and working-class communities. The wealthy tend to have better out health outcomes than those with fewer resources. These are, we're pretty aware of how this kind of works. Wilkinson and Marmot summarise the situation as follows. People further down the social ladder usually run at least twice the risk of serious illness and premature death than those at the top. Okay, that makes sense. But here's where it gets really shocking. They note that the, these effects are not confined to the poor. The social gradient in health runs right across society so that even among middle-class office workers, lower-ranking staff suffer much more disease and earlier death than higher-ranking staff. I'm going to say that again because it shocks me every time I read it. Even among middle-class office workers, lower-ranking staff suffer much more disease and earlier death than higher-ranking staff. So this shows us that it's not just about incomes that matter, it's actually about status. Even more than poverty and deprivation, the thing that affects health in one of the most fundamental ways is social exclusion, a lack of agency, being marginalised in hierarchical environments. This is an important consideration in schools, and there are some questions that I encourage schools to ask themselves in relation to this. Is the school culture, and you might think about your own workplaces as well, more democratic and equitable or more hierarchical? How much student voice and agency is valued? How much are the community, whānau, hapu and iwi involved in planning decisions? Is the school highly structured and hierarchical? Does the school have policies of equity, anti-bullying and inclusion? Does the school, and many schools still do, use systems that sort students into hierarchy, such as streaming? Such systems affect how students and teachers are positioned in the social hierarchy, and they affect well-being. Learning about the determinants of health, about these social hierarchies and forms of exclusion, is also an integral part of health education. Learning about taking action against discrimination, sexism, homophobia, racism, and other social hierarchies are also a part of the curriculum. In addition, understanding the self, learning the skills of positive psychology and interpersonal skills, young people can also study how the determinants of health coalesce in complex ways and how social hierarchies impact well-being, as well as what to do about these. So I'm going to conclude in a minute, but I'm just going to summarise where I've got to first. So far, I've argued that we have a need, and young people have demanded that schools respond to their calls for an increased focus on mental health, well-being, relationships, and sexuality. These are all areas of learning under a curriculum subject that already exists called health education. Health ed tends to get little curriculum time in school for three reasons. 
It's not seen as a serious subject. Numeracy and literacy have been privileged at the expense of everything else. But crucially, health education continually gets confused with health promotion. Health promotion may actually have some place in schools, but it shouldn't be confused with learning. Finally, schools can't be charged with the responsibility to solve whatever the latest health crisis is because health issues are a result of the complex articulation of health determinants. What schools do have a responsibility for is the curriculum, and health education has been a mandated subject in New Zealand schools for at least 30 years. So I'm going to conclude my talk by reiterating that if we want our schools to address well-being, then we need to teach about it. We need to value it, we need to make space for students to study health ed as a discipline in its own right. And we need to centre this within a whole school approach so that health and well-being is a commitment of the whole school, including staff, students, whānau and community. But this isn't possible unless we teach students explicitly about health and respect it as a discipline in its own right. To finish, these are my key recommendations. If you're a parent, a teacher, a staff member of a school, a board of trustees member, or you have family members who attend school, then you should ask your local school how much curriculum time they dedicate to teaching young people about health and well-being. If you're a teacher or a school leader, then it's time to be bold. Five lessons in a mates and dates program or a talk in the school assembly isn't going to cut it. Scheduling physical education is important, but it's different to health education. I talked to a principal of a high school in the Hawke's Bay last week who had just reorganised the timetable and allocated health education three periods a week for every student in year nine and ten. That, to me, is valuing this kind of learning. I do want to express my support to teachers in this area as well, teaching about mental health, about relationships, about gender and sexuality and drugs and all the messiness of being human isn't easy. It takes guts, it takes pedagogical skills, it takes knowledge, as well as responsivity and sensitivity to young people and children and communities. Most of all, it requires some self-knowledge and some learning. And teachers have had very few open, nationally funded, dedicated opportunities to gain this professional learning in the last 15 years. If you're a teacher and you feel a little unprepared to teach this stuff, then you're not alone. We need to invest in professional development of teachers in health education. Youth cultures are moving fast. Quality mental health and sexuality education needs teachers who are up-to-date, confident and knowledgeable. And to date, we've relied on volunteer organisations like the New Zealand Health Education Association, who do a great job but are not very much funded. They're mostly volunteers to do this work. It's also important that schools and teachers don't confuse health education with health promotion. We need to give clear messages to teachers that they are not expected to solve health problems and we really don't want them to measure them, but to engage children and youth in rich learning experiences. Because of the determinants of health, schools can't fix the, any, any particular youth health crisis, but they can help young people learn so that they can better navigate it. So we all value health and well-being, perhaps in the current age, more than ever before. It's time to give the subject of health education the status and time it deserves in schools. We have the policy in New Zealand and we have the will. We just need to be bold enough to do it. Thanks so much for listening. Tēnā koutou katoa. Hi. Uh, thank you for bringing the subject to the public. Yeah, I think we really need, really need it.
Uh, I was born and raised in Brazil, so yeah, sexuality is something really common in my country and coming to New Zealand is such a different experience. <laughs> so uh, I would like to add to uh, research to the ones that you already provided. So there was a survey conducted by this dating service, uh, Saucy Dates, if I'm not wrong. So they conduct this survey among uh, 20 countries and they conclude that Kiwi men are the worst <laughs> lovers. <laughs> <laughs> and also another survey conducted by Durex company, they conclude that 60% of uh, Kiwis are unhappy with their sexual uh, life. So I was trying to understand what what connects everything? Why, why does this happen? Because people are usually attacking the, the effects, not the cause, I think. So I think that maybe the cause is repression and emotion disconnection. So I would like to hear your, your thoughts about this, this kind of theory. Wow, why New Zealand, man New Zealand men bad lovers? That's a difficult question to ask, I think. Thank you. <laughs> I think maybe they were talking about straight men for a start. This is a difficult question, yeah. Where do, where do our cultures of of understanding ourselves and our sexuality and our bodies come from. Um, I think understanding New Zealand's colonial context is really important. Um, there's lots of interesting research from the Pacific and from Māori communities. Jade Legrace at, at the University of Auckland does really interesting work that, that you might want to look at in terms of Māori notions of sexuality and well-being um, and thinking about post-colonisation and pre-colonisation work. So I think it's a very complex... A complex um, question. And I, I, mean, I visited Sweden, I visited, we were talking about um, Berlin earlier, and I think each country and each cultural context has a different, um, I guess, range of cultures and histories coalescing to form how we think about ourselves and what's okay in the public space or not. Um, New Zealand is very progressive in some ways, as I was saying, in terms of our policy. We, we're actually world-leading in terms of progressive policy and sexuality education, but when it comes to the implementation of that and how happy people are to actually talk about sex and sexuality, I think that's a different thing. Um, I think it also differs in terms of people's cultural backgrounds, um, different families, different religious perspectives. So I don't think there's a, either one New Zealand um, way with this either. Um, yeah. I can't tell you why, why New Zealand men have a bad reputation, sorry. <laughs> um, thank you so much for that talk. Um, the New Zealand curriculum is admirably broad and open to personalisation. Doesn't that also mean that it's open to corruption and um, a very bad interpretation of sex education? Um, you know, for example, a religious school could uh, force an anti-LGBTI agenda or an anti-abortion agenda. Are there any safeguards against that? It's a great question, actually. Um, I think, yeah, the New, the New Zealand curriculum is a very broad, high-level document. Um, and we're, I'm talking there about the New Zealand curriculum for all subjects of which health and physical education is one part and sexuality education is a part of that. Um, there is a lot of freedom for schools to implement that curriculum in ways that they choose. It's mandated in all um, state schools only, so private schools and integrated schools don't have to adhere to the New Zealand curriculum. Um, so that's, that's one issue that, that you might be getting at. I think... 
when I'm talking about the, the history of policy in New Zealand and how strong policy has been, we've had a very hands-off culture from the Ministry of Education and the government um, since the Tomorrow Schools legislation, really, that the responsibility for curriculum making has been localised with individual schools, which has given them a lot of choice, which has some real advantages in terms of schools being able to be really responsive to their communities and real disadvantages in terms of what might get missed out. Sexuality education is one of those areas that can get entirely missed out, and there's, there's very little um, accountability for schools if they do miss it out. Um, and then, as you suggest, the interpretation of, of sexuality education can be with an individual teacher or a school. I think this is changing. We've seen the debate with New Zealand history and um, the outrage that a lot of us have experienced that, that students can go all the way through school without learning anything about the history of Aotearoa. And there is a change in terms of a new, new New Zealand history curriculum and some moves to think about what is actually compulsory in our sector. And I know the Ministry of Education are working with that, it's quite a difficult thing to grapple with in terms of the, we do want freedom and openness um, in terms of knowledge and curriculum, but we might be willing to say there are some things that actually we can't, that can't be left to chance. Um, the, the new relationships and sexuality education guidelines do actually have some statements that are intended by the ministry to say these things should be taught in all schools. That document's quite new, it only came out last year, and um, there again hasn't been a huge amount of professional development around that for teachers, and I think we need more. Yeah, thank you for your question, it's a, it's a really great point. Splendid talk, um, loved it. I'm thinking that almost all your uh, reflections and your teaching were related to secondary schools. Yes. Uh, are there any particular tips and ideas you should give, or, or you could give, to, for teachers up to year eight? Yeah, my own experiences in secondary schools, that's, that's where I did sure. my own teaching in high schools. But the, um, the Relationships and Sexuality Guidelines have two documents. So one is specifically for students in year ones to one to years 1 to 8, and another document for years 9 to 13. And there's a lot of overlap as well between those in terms of schools prioritising it. We realised after the, after the 2015 iteration of of the sexuality guidelines that the word sexuality was could be a little bit frightening for primary school teachers and this isn't really their fault it's because we just don't have strong under understandings of how important sexuality is how lifelong sexuality is how we need to learn about gender and our bodies and relationships with others and body safety and all that important stuff from a really early age um, it's incredibly important that primary schools are inclusive environments for gender diversity and for families. So there's a huge amount of work around gender and sexuality that primary schools can engage in, and, and really good schools do engage with that work. Hi, I'm also not born here, and I moved here from Berlin. And um, one of the things I found the most um, unsettling was the suicide rate here. So is there anything that kind of addresses... Um, you know, the teenage suicide rate is one of the highest in the world as well. I think New Zealand is number one. So is there anything that's kind of addressing that in the school's upcoming curriculums? Yeah, so one of, one of the things that we argue about health education is, is that it, if we learn about mental health and about 
sexuality and about gender and our identity and we learn skills, then those things are going to be protective um, for young people. There's important research about how um, the, the difficulties of addressing suicide directly and that, that if teachers are not careful, they can actually increase the dangers um, around suicide, but they shouldn't shut down conversations with young people and create really safe spaces. I think one of it's a really important issue for teacher professional development as well and for schools. Melinda Weber and I have been working on some mental health education work with the Ministry of Ed and trying to set out some guidelines so that schools have really clear processes for student disclosures, for when students are experiencing distress, that, that there are clear protocols in place, that those things don't go ignored in the school environment and that schools have a strong responsibility um, to follow up with students and families. I think suicide's a really complex issue and I think schools have an important role to play, but actually it's a whole of community, um, whole of society issue as well. We know that high deprivation also is, 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 a, is a real risk, risk factor for suicide as well. So again, it comes down to issues of un, an unequal society as well. Yeah, thank you. When um, health education is taught, is that going to be marked for the students? Is that a... Uh, assessment based and my question is should it be like that um, my argument is that health education if we take it seriously as a curriculum subject then yes it should be assessed but not in terms of health outcomes it should be assessed in terms of learning so what students are learning um, in a particular area so that can be an ongoing long long-term assessment project some schools have been pressured in the last couple of years to use well-being indicator measures of mental health and well-being um, and to assess students um, on those I would I strongly argue against that I don't think we need to be trying to measure students well-being or health or their body size or um, other things that we would their, their weight their height we don't we don't need to assess those things we we need to assess students learning so if we're if we're seeing learning in a holistic ongoing long-term um, way in terms of forming knowledge and skills then that's what we should be assessing students understandings uh, kia ora, Katie. Just then you mentioned we shouldn't be measuring health outcomes. Why not? Well, I think if we, if we go down the track of measuring health outcomes, then we're measuring the impact of the determinants of health. So, as I suggested, the determinants of health, our, our health outcomes are stratified according to socioeconomic status, our cultural backgrounds, the place we grew up, our genetics, and behaviours which are also not entirely in our control. So as soon as we start measuring students' health outcomes, then we're measuring the determinants of health, which is out of the control largely of young people and of schools. Um, it also can create its own kind of kind of hierarchies when we've seen schools measuring and plotting students on the BMI index, for example. Um, it's a problematic measure that they're starting with. What, what good does that do? It often creates all kinds of problems with, with body image and confidence that, that does damage to young people. So I think we need to measure learning, um, not health outcomes. Um, so you mentioned earlier about um, mindfulness education not being as effective in terms of mental health education. Could you go a bit more in depth than that? 
I think mindfulness can be really useful. I use mindfulness myself, and I think that it, it can be a really useful tool and a, an experiential tool um, to help people with all kinds of um, mental health, well-being, thought patterns, um, etc. With with stress, it's really there's lots of research that suggests it's helpful with, for stress. It's not useful for everyone. Um, and I think that if we use mindfulness in a decontextualized way, then it might suggest that this is the answer to, to your health and well-being problems. It might, it's one tool, can be useful. Um, but as I used with the racism example, we also need a whole lot of other tools and strategies that mean that our environments are more inclusive, that we think, why am I feeling so much stress? What's happening in the environment, um, in my family, in my school, in other contexts? And so we sort of need to get at it from both perspectives, I think. Yeah. Thank you. It's a great question.